This is Department of the Army. Our records show that you are the Rockford James who failed to turn in his service automatic in May 1953. Contact us at once. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we continue to explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. For this episode, we are going to a Season 3 David Chase episode. Uh, mm-hmm. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but Waterbury will bury you. Uh, <laughs> I have two questions for you. Okay. Question the first. Uh, this was your selection. Uh, why did you pick this episode? Question the second. Do you think there's a better pun available for this title? Because I feel like it almost got there, but not quite. (laughs) Uh, Okay, those are two good questions. I'm going to start with the first question. I picked this episode because we we didn't have time to do the episodes I wanted to do. (laughs) Which we're going to do. um, And I cannot remember the names of them now, but they're coming up. Right. There are some longer episodes that are related to each other. So Yeah. And, okay, I wanted to do an episode of him with fellow PIs. Oh, okay. And we've done, like, the Gabby and Gandy one. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this episode, we're going to have Vincent St. Cloud, who was also in the... um, Was in the second uh, Lance White episode. Oh, I mean, he's in three episodes. This is his first appearance, but we saw him in Nice Guys Finish Dead, which is the second Lance Wright episode. Isn't he also chasing the the, the diamond in uh, Queen of Peru? No. Or am I... Okay, see? <laughs> Look at this. I could just use IMDb, but <laughs> instead I use my brain, which this is... This actor, uh, Simon Oakland, does play a different character in one episode. Uh, oh, okay. But that's not... I know who you're thinking. It's not... Uh, uh, he is not in Queen it's of the Okay. Well, anyways, the point <laughs> that I'm getting at here uh, is that I would... Oh, yes! I remember it. Okay, yes. He's in the... We. It was the one with the awards. Yeah, he's the one presenting yeah. the awards. Because he's yes, like the head yes. of the PI Benevolent Association or whatever they call it. So I basically just wanted to dive into the underbelly of the, the private eye world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one was adjacent to one I wanted to do and <laughs> had uh, an immensely long title, which I thought would be fun. Right. As for the better pun in that title, I you know, that's a good question. I, I would characterize this as... They had a title, like, <laughs> I think somewhere along the lines, some writer, I guess the writer in this case would probably be, is it Cannell or is it, no, it's David Chase. It's David Chase, yeah. Yeah, I think at some point David Chase had the line, Waterbury will bury you, mm-hmm. in his head and thought, oh, we'll make that the uh, the title. And then that's when they ended up coming up with the name of their operation as Sticks and Stones. So, uh, like, I feel like that all of it was kind of... I feel like this title was workshopped to where it is. And where it is is fine. But there's something about the second part that could be a tighter pun. I don't know what it is. I'm not David Chase. Shocker. Yeah. I think that's my my theory is that 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 second part that isn't the tighter pun. I think that's where they start mm-hmm. and they work their way out to build the rest on top of it, and mm-hmm. uh, and they're stuck with that part that isn't the best part. It's kind of a uh, sacred cow situation where it's like to really get there, you yeah. might have to let go of that original concept. Right. That's fine. That's and then they're like, well, 
We have to record it, so let's just do it. Let's just do it. <laughs> let's just do it. Uh, before we get into this, though, I have a warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents are visiting. Two things about this. <laughs> One, I watched it with them, and I will be sharing some of their notes. I'm very excited uh, about this. They, <laughs> they did not know that I was taking notes for them, but I was. Uh, and then the second thing is that at any point, they could walk in and interrupt the podcast. Um, I'm not promising that they will. But it's a it's a possibility. If it's uh, if it's a particularly funny intrusion, I'll leave it in the yeah. Edit. Um, so I feel like this is the first David Chase one we've done for a minute. Um, yeah, it's been a while since we've had a good solid Chase uh, episode. Um, and so I think you know we will see a lot of the signature humor. Uh, focus on the seedy lives of uh, <laughs> you know these out from the law um, PIs. Uh, no mobsters in this one. No. But there is some crooked authority figure situation kind of going on. Yeah, actually, you could tell that there's no mobsters because the bad guy has that uh, same affected upper class voice that uh, are the one of the villains of the previous episode we did has had um, the uh, Italian bird fiasco. Mm-hmm. That kind of like transatlantic accent yes yeah right which are it's code for these people would be mobsters but they were born rich (laughs) so they can do it legally yeah exactly this episode is directed by uh jerry london who has done some of our favorites uh yeah this is completing our jerry london collection we have done all of his other episodes Mm -hmm. oh we need a sound effect for that (laughs) (laughs) a final jerry london Yeah. So to recap, uh, that's a tall woman in red wagon, just by accident, the reincarnation of Angie, the hammer of Seablock, a bad deal in the valley, sticks and stones may break your bones, but water barrier will bury you, which we are, which we are doing now. And then the trees, the bees, and TT flowers. Right. And that's the next episode. And that's the next, yeah, that is the next episode, uh, that they, uh, aired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, those are all good. Uh, just by accident is the, is one that we were cool on. That's the race car one. Oh, yeah. yeah. We did it a while ago now, but, uh, I think of all of these, we were coolest on yeah. that. And the rest have all been, uh, good to, good to great. So go back in our archives, listeners. Uh, these are some good, uh, some good ones. You can listen to our digitally young down voices. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! So yeah, big ups, big ups to Jerry. Yeah, doing a good job on the Rockford Files overall, I'd say. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd say so too. He looks like he's still out there and kicking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has something in production, I think. Yeah, uh, game of power. With all of the all those compliments out of the way, um, mm-hmm. what do you want to talk about first? The I'm giving you lots of choices this episode. Yeah, that's good. I like to choose my own adventure. <laughs> what do you want to talk about first? The answering machine message or the preview montage? I remember laughing at the answering machine message. As you heard at the beginning of our program, um, this is the this is the army calling to yes. follow up on the fact that he never returned his service revolver. <laughs> I guess we're talking about this first. This is good. Uh, yeah, I actually had explain that to my parents i was like oh okay hold on is this the canonical source of jim's unregistered gun i guess so this uh, like this seems like it uh and not only is it that but again it plays 
not like the the gun doesn't show up in the episode, but the talk around the use of guns as a PI is actually relevant. Yeah, and so it's interesting. It's another. I I would say it's another another good thematic fit with it. We've we've talked about this before, but maybe not for a while. Uh, the answering machine messages were a gimmick that at a certain point they couldn't stop doing and they yeah. kind of ran out of material at a certain point. Um, I think so they get much more random, I think, as the show goes on. They usually just had someone who happened to be around when they were putting the episode together to record them. Yeah. Sometimes it was Stuart Margolin. Sometimes it was yeah. Juanita Bartlett. Sometimes it was, you know, someone's assistant who happened to be around. <laughs> um, it's, so it always stands out, I think, when the answering machine message actually, or answer phone message, as we will hear, um, yes, <laughs> it has something to do with the episode. We're always like, we're like kids it's finding like a, a few times. It's been like a plot point, right? Yeah, like two or three times now. Yeah, but mainly it's is we just I just enjoy when it thematically hit, you yeah. know, like hits on something that's yeah, like level one is where it's a plot point in the episode. Level two is it is thematically relevant to the episode, and that's where yeah. we're at here. <laughs> and then there's the ones that are just demonstrating some aspect of Jim's life, and it's has nothing to do with the episode, yeah. which are fine. <laughs> That's the baseline. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and speaking of things that are fine, I feel like this preview montage is fine. Yeah, it was... Okay, I, the notes I wrote down were uh, Inheritance Con. <laughs> I feel like we've seen similar ones before, um, mm -hmm. which is, again, I'm not arguing against it. I, I, I welcome it, like, seeing a regular cast member show up. <laughs> um, uh, I, I wrote down FBI. That'll change. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ooh, the FBI's involved. No. Uh, and then Spin Out, mm -hmm. which I was excited about. And then uh, <laughs> PI Fight. Yeah. Which is actually a fun fight. And, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. And then the final, like, kill him. <laughs> Very <laughs> ominous. Uh, yes. My two uh, comments on the preview montage is that all I could think about from the shot of them squaring up for the PI fight. Um, so that's Jim and... Vern St. Cloud. Yeah. Um, and so Vern St. Cloud is a larger, older, rumplier man than, yeah. I mean, he's wider, but shorter, yeah. uh, older and more rumply than Jim Rockford. But he's putting up his dukes, right? Like to box. Mm -hmm. And all I could think of was the cowardly lion, like, put him up, yeah. put him up. <laughs> put him up. <laughs> um, and then my second note is that when I started playing the episode, uh, I think, my dog did something. I had to, like, I didn't turn the volume on at the same time that mm. I actually started let it play. So I sat down with no volume at the point where Jim is wearing glasses in the preview montage. And I just wrote, Jim running a con. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the visual signifier was strong enough. Like Superman and Clark Kent. Yep. Jim and the uh, probate officer that he plays. <laughs> Hello, listeners. We really appreciate you being here, and we want to make sure that you know that you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. In addition to episode previews and access to the 200 a day Rockford Files file spreadsheet, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where we talk about movies we're watching, books we're reading, and games we're playing. 200 a day will remain free to all for as long as we do it. But if you want to help support us and get access to the new Plus Expenses audio feed, you can become a patron for just $1 an episode. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he also sells our games at conventions east of the Mississippi. See where to find him at Jim Likes Games on Twitter. Shane Liebling, 
If you play games online, you know you should check out his free dice rolling app, Roll for Your Party, at rollforyour.party. Kevin Lovecraft. Hear him on the RPG Actual Play podcast, the Wednesday evening podcast all-stars, over at misdirectedmark.com. Jay Adon. Check out his amazing miniature painting over at jadon.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, and finally, big thanks to Detective Patrons. Check them out on Twitter. Eric Antenor at Antenor, Brian Pereira at Thermoware, Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. We follow them too at 200pod. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it. And check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. Well, we start our episode with our credits playing over some, uh, I think, stock footage of a plane landing in Los Angeles. Um, And then the camera cuts to a nice long shot of Rocky's truck and uh, some voiceover from Jim and Rocky and... uh, seems that Jim has been on vacation for yeah. some amount of time, uh, presumably to Cuba. Right. Or somewhere in that in that area, like like somewhere where there isn't an embargo. Right. Uh, as Jim has brought back a huge handful of Cuban cigars for Rocky. And Rocky is, uh, he's Rocky, so he's worried. <laughs> Ain't that illegal? I don't remember what his actual line is, but uh, it's very, very He's Rocky. worried about the illegality, but... Uh, Jim reassures him that it happens all the time. No one actually cares about the cigars. And uh, Rocky takes them with the comment, well, it won't hurt us to have a few good smokes. It won't make us a pair of commies. Yes. (laughs) And I will point out here, this is the first moment where we get a little note from my parents. Uh, My dad is concerned about their seatbelts and the lack thereof. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, it was the the 70s. No one wore seatbelts. Yeah, exactly. They arrive at Jim's trailer, and there's someone bent over uh, taping the door. Um, Jim hopefully informs Rocky that uh, he's putting a piece of tape there so that he can come back later and see if it was disturbed. That means that someone, you know, came home. Um, I got such... uh, I I don't even know how to explain the emotion. When I was younger, and by younger, I mean younger, like elementary school, we had a book, uh, like a picture book called Spycraft. And I think the cover had... Uh, or like a picture of a pair of glasses with a fake nose, like because that's what a spy wears. Right. <laughs> uh, but it told me this trick of taping a door to find out if someone had been through it. That's a trick that has stuck with me my entire life. I've never had an opportunity to use it, but I was super excited when I recognized that somebody was doing it at the same time that Jim did. I'm proud of young Epi. <laughs> the version of that that I've... Uh, I think absorbed from some book is uh, sticking a, a hair across a doorway. Yeah. yeah. No one notices a hair. Nobody. Um, well, Jim surprises this mystery taping man. Turns out that they know each other. This is Billy Maryhew, uh, and he is also a PI. And as soon as he turns around, I go, I know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> So Billy Maryhew is played by Cleveland Little, who I think anyone generally would know from Blazing Saddles, as he is yeah. the he is the black sheriff brought in to uh, to the little town to restore order. I always feel like he should have had more of a career because he's not in yeah. that many things, and he died pretty young, he's which good. is really sad. Um, 
but uh yeah he's great he's great in this episode uh for sure i i tried to look i didn't find anything i feel like there's a scene that specifically is referencing (laughs) some stuff from blazing saddles and we'll get to that yeah i know the scene you're talking about uh but um blazing saddles the mel brooks movie from if you don't know blazing saddles i don't know what to tell you um It is the rare example of a movie that could absolutely not be made anymore, should not be made in the current day, but yeah. it's one of the few times I'll go out on the, it was, it was the time uh, limb on something. Mm-hmm. It is about racial prejudice. It uses a lot of very racially charged characters and language and all this stuff, but it's on the right side of history about it. So it's one of the few yeah. times that a spoof actually spoofs for me. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm right. going off about Blazing Saddles. No, no, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I was just digging through his his IMDb while you were doing that and realized that he played a character in Fletch Lives, which if you don't know Fletch Lives, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> oh, boy. I need to do some homework. That is the sequel to Fletch. But his his character's name in Fletch Live is Calculus Entropy, and now I have to <laughs> watch Fletch Lives. All right, very good. Um, well, Billy uh, has been trying to get in touch with Jim for days, and we have, a, uh, again, something I feel like we haven't had for a while, a nice, solid joke in the cut um, where Jim says, Oh, well, yeah. Why didn't you call my answer phone? Cut to Jim playing his uh, playing his message, but the batteries are out and it is dying. And so you get the tape slowing um, towards the end. Clearly, uh, it cannot receive calls. Rocky's very helpful in this moment, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, maybe the batteries. It never occurred to me that it would be a battery-operated uh, answering machine. No, no, no. That's the thing. I think we're learning in this scene that Jim has had a problem with the utilities as well. Yes. Because his stove doesn't work and the milk in his refrigerator is spoiled. Like all of that, whatever. But it's just, it seems like he's been gone and the whole place is falling just apart. falling apart, yeah. So it could be plugged in and then the like the backup battery mm-hmm. is now dead. Like, the, like he doesn't have any. It's not explained. I'm justifying it. <laughs> Well, uh, Billy wants to talk to Jim uh, for a job. Um, he can't do it himself because he has lost his PI license on a <laughs> what seems to be fairly. I mean, I think it's a little premature to say bogus, but kind of seems on 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 a fluke kind of situation. Um, yeah, he was caught by the police breaking and entering, and that is a felony, and thus the license board stripped him of his. Uh, private investigator's license. Um, but he went into this house because he was, you know, staking it out for a job. He thought that there was a woman in trouble. So he went in and got uh, got popped by the cops. He's still worried about her. And so he wants Jim to check up on the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. He's telling the story to Jim while all the business that you mentioned is going on. The yeah. trying to use the stove and the gas is out and um uh, Rocky's, you know, trying to be helpful and kind of bubbling around. Rocky offers, when he hears that, you know, Billy's out of a job, Rocky offers him a cigar and he just very smoothly says, you know, oh, thank you. Takes the one from Rocky's hand and then takes one out of Rocky's shirt pocket. So he has two and puts them into his coat. That's <laughs> like, oh, it's a great little physical comedy. Yeah. Um, but to tell him the rest of the story, he wants Jim to come for him, come with him. To, uh, for a ride uh, on the way to his 9.30 appointment. 
Um, this is uh, another gag where uh, we come back to them as they're walking up to the employment office, as this is yes. where his 930 appointment is. This is a pretty exposition heavy uh, first part of the episode to get all of our get all the stage set. Right. Yeah. I, I, so I have two points about that. Number one, and this is going to uh, this is going to be a theme that's going to be reflected throughout the show. I cannot keep track of what jobs these PIs have been on. <laughs> like the, the, there's, there's a con that's going to be a slightly different con played against each PI. Right. Uh, I get the gist of what's happening, but I can't keep track of who is what and where yeah. as I, as we go along, because I'm, I am not a private investigator. <laughs> All right. That out of the way, there's a lot of exposition, but like you said, there's business going on in the background. It's always with physical business and jokes. This whole trying to find his spot in the line uh, at the uh, unemployment office is uh, not like hilarious. What am I trying to say about it? It's it's interesting. Yeah. Instead of just filling it with what would be a stereotype of an unemployment line, there's people that are dressed in different, like, uh, economic classes, you Mm -hmm. know, to signify different economic classes and things. And it's enough to keep your attention as to what's going on there. uh, So you're not just sitting and kind of zoning out on um, an exposition dump. Yeah. It's interesting how they craft this, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, another element is that there's a little drama in the scene because we're because Billy's trying to find his place in line and he keeps striking out on where he's supposed to be. So there's a little there's a little dramatic question that we're like, is he going to get into the line or not? Right. Um, (laughs) It's not hugely dramatic, but it gives a sense of momentum to the scene over them just standing outside and talking. So, um, not to leave you hanging, he does eventually find his place in line. Uh, yes. I have never been to, I, I have been on unemployment. I have never been to a physical office and I don't know if this is a thing that still happens. The, the line, um, right. You line, it's like boarding uh, Southwest airlines. You like line up based Mm -hmm. on your appointment time, but that doesn't mean that if you get yeah. there at that time, you have an appointment. That just means that that's when you get in the line. So uh, Billy yeah. does eventually <laughs> find the first 945 appointment guy and gets in line in front of him because he's the last one to show up for his 930 appointment. Um, so Billy was hired by uh, his by a client, uh, a fashion model named Odette. Uh, because Odette had a friend named Jamie who met a guy uh, named Wexler. And Odette was worried that Wexler was beating up on Jamie. That's mm-hmm. basically the situation. Yeah. Uh, Odette didn't want to go to the cops because Jamie had had some trouble with police back in New York. There was a particular house that they were staying in. Wexler was house-sitting for someone that was abroad. Billy staked it out all day. There was no sign of anyone. Um, he thought that maybe she had just she was just in there and maybe in trouble. So... At 11 o'clock, he decided to go in. Three minutes later, the cops showed up and yeah. you know, arrested him for breaking and entering. 
the couple, when they returned from abroad, said they had no idea. They had they they hadn't hired anyone to house it. They didn't know anyone named Wexler. And uh, when Billy went back to Odette, she had ghosted. She was gone. Yeah. Um, so he's left in the lurch. Uh, he's trying to find out what happened. He wants to dig up some evidence that explains why he was there. And maybe the license bureau would give him his license back if he can you know, show that he wasn't just, you know, breaking and entering for fun, I guess. Um, Jim, of course. I charge 200 a day plus expenses and you are uh, on unemployment. Don't worry, I'll work it out. This is also establishing that they know each other. Uh, they're friendly. Yeah. Um, Jim is willing to take this on for this guy. He's kind of a buddy. Yeah. yeah. This might not be the worst favor to give. And then, yes, as you say, we do end on a joke because uh, he finds his place in line, says, oh, it's like this every Tuesday. And Jim says, it's Wednesday. Womp <laughs> womp. One of the uh, pieces of info that Jim got from Billy was that uh, they had met, uh, Jamie and Wexler had met at the Palace Disco. So mm. we go to Jim at the disco. Um Asking the bartender for, uh, you know, if he'd seen this, uh, seen the woman, knew anyone named Wexler, etc. The bartender says he has no idea about any of that. So Jim drops a, drops a couple of bills to <laughs> pay for a personal, no, a business call. If he yes. uh, does happen to see them come in. Now we're dealing with nothing but variables in this episode. I, I'm afraid to tell you in, <laughs> in so far as we'll never, ever find out if Jim gets paid for any of this. And we never find out how much money he dishes out uh, in expenses as he goes along. Uh, but he seems to be free-flowing with the money here, uh, despite probably having misgivings about getting paid. Um, that go that speaks again to what you were just saying before, that we, we get the, the vibe here that him and Billy, although they don't hang out, they have a mutual respect for each other. Uh, this is not one of our usual cast of Jim's friends, but you get the feeling that this is going to become personal. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't already know what this episode is going to be about, it, it kind of uh, is sliding in that direction. As soon as Jim leaves, the bartender picks up the phone and makes a phone call. And our uh, rumply guy, <laughs> uh, as we know, Vern St. Cloud, but uh, as audience members, we don't know who this guy is yet, except that we saw him in the preview montage trying to punch Jim in the face. He's the one who answers the phone. Uh, the bartender, you know, says someone was asking about Wexler. I got his license number, but you're going to have to come down here to pay me for it. That was our deal. Yes. Um. After this phone call, it is established that uh, Vern here is in the back of a shoe store and his brother-in-law comes uh, back to find him because he is uh, being a, a derelict on the job and he has not gotten the 1488 in bone for the customer who's been waiting yes. for it. So there are a whole bunch of indicators here that, that uh, this character, who we don't know yet, uh, is down on his luck that revolve around this job he has at the shoe store. And... It just seemed like there was a time that that was how you showed that a guy was down on his luck, was that you had him working at a shoe store. Mm. Uh, and I suspect that this is like, uh, you know, some patriarchy stuff. I, I suspect that it's emasculating to, uh, you know, your customers are most likely women who are demanding or whatever. Like, I, I'm sure it's all wrapped up in, in a lot of that. But also the fact that it's a job that he got from his brother-in-law. Right. 
confounds that. Um, but it, it's just, it was weird to me because I, I was like, they don't, that's not a thing anymore. And in fact, <laughs> if I walked into a shoe store and there was this guy selling shoes, I would be a little like, who hired him? <laughs> I don't know. Jim goes to this to the house where all the drama went down. Um, they keep mentioning their name, and I was like, ah, it's not that important. Um, but for the sake <laughs> of keeping track, it's the Molinero house. Oh, yeah, the Molinero. Yeah. So uh, Jim is here in his glasses disguise, so we know he's running a con. Uh, <laughs> he's from the probate office, and Hugh Wexler is the is the only relative of uh, elderly Wexler who died and did not leave a will. And so they, the probate office, has tracked him down, and uh, he's trying to get him his several hundred thousand dollar inheritance if uh, Mrs. Molinero, who answered the door, can help him out. She says that uh, she doesn't know who this Wexler guy is. Jim is the second person who's come around asking about him, and she'd love to help, but she just has never met this person, doesn't know who they are, doesn't know anything about them. Um, Jim wants to leave leave her his card to call in case Wexler shows up. Mm-hmm. And then we have a very uh, awkward little moment where Mr. Molinero shows up and asks, who's this? What's this guy doing here? And she very clearly not wanting to let him know what's going on says, oh, it's just someone that I can't, you know, I can't really help. Uh, I'll tell you about it on the way to the club. And like, Closes the door in his face. Yeah. So this is meant to give us some suspicions about the Molineros, right? Yeah, yeah. This is highly suspicious. So I'm here and I'm like, okay. So we have P.I. We have this rumply guy who looks like he's in the lurch in (laughs) some way. uh, Who I, you know... And I was like, I think that might be the same guy. I think I'd looked him up. So, like, I know he's also a PI. So I'm like, okay, yeah. so he's probably also been hit by this thing. Then we have the uh, this weird interaction, mysterious people who don't seem to exist. Like, all right, we're, all this stuff is, there's a lot going on. Um, so I did not really expect the next scene to be Jim taking the groceries out of his car yes. while Vern St. Cloud sneaks up behind him in the darkness and then whaps him across the back of the head with his pistol this is such a wonderful rockford file scene my notes for this scene start off with the groceries yeah no what's gonna happen to those groceries jim never carries groceries and gets them all the way to his fridge like either like something happens to him uh and he has to drop them or Mm. somebody that is ostensibly his friend will take food out of the groceries <laughs> and eat it in front of him or something. But like he never gets from the car to his front door. Yeah. We will, we will <laughs> cut in to him already in the trailer, unloading his groceries. That's the only time he actually gets them to the fridge. If he starts in the car, you never exactly. get him inside. Yeah. That's just that. It's, it's like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Chekhov's gun, right? It's Rockford's groceries. <laughs> so there's a lot of business here even before we get to the fight. Yeah. Jim falls down on his face. Vern puts his uh, foot on his back and is, you know, acting all tough. Tell me everything to do with your business with Hugh Wexler. And Jim starts gasping and plays that he's asthmatic and that he can't breathe. He can't tell him anything if he can't breathe. Um, Vern does do one, you know, yeah, sure, whatever. But Jim sticks with it. And so he finally lets up. And so Jim does take that opportunity uh, to spin around and knock the gun out of his hand, kick it away, and then uh, get to his feet. And that's when Vern squares up. Put him up, put him up. All right, a quick note from my mom. Oh, the gun. Okay, go on. (laughs) 
Uh, Vern apparently has some boxing experience. Yeah. Okay, so this fight, um, I appreciate the choreography of this fight. Mm -hmm. It's still two old guys slugging it out, right? (laughs) But they're... There is a difference between how the two of them are doing it. You can see a, a like a little narration or narrative going through it where they're surprising each other. Yeah. It, in a weird way, it reminds me of um, that famous sword fight from The Princess Bride mm-hmm. with the I'm not left handed thing. Like it, it, it's not exactly that, but it's sort of it still has a nice uh, little s- story to it all of itself. Mm-hmm. This is just me appreciating this. And so, I mean, the story is basically they square up. First, Jim gets punched in the face a couple times because Vern has these very boxer-like jabs. (laughs) And you see the surprise on Jim's face that this old guy is punching him in the face. Yeah. So Jim uh, goes for what he's better at, which is surprise, and kind of charges Mm -hmm. him, gets him in a kind of a side, kind of like a side headlock almost, and just starts giving him body blows in the gut. So even though you would think that, uh, you know, Vern, who is a, again, more rotund man. Beefier. Could take some of these blows. He starts uh, coughing and doubles over in pain as uh, apparently Jim tore up his ulcer with all of these punches to the gut. Yeah. So Jim does get the better of him and uh, he needs to start uh, taking his Maalox uh, to to treat this ulcer. Uh, I just got to say, what a great character thing about Vern here that he carries Maalox with him. Like, this, mm-hmm. he, this is a man with stress issues. <laughs> well, and he says that, you know, he's desperate. This is the first lead that he's had on Wexler in a month, and that's why yeah. it's coming on so so hard. Why is he so desperate? Well, he lost his PI license after 33 mm-hmm. years for breaking and entering. Go ahead and laugh. <laughs> uh, so Vern is... The older, crusty relic from an earlier era, right? Yeah. Um, he has all these turns of phrase that are straight out of, like, 40s gangster movies. Oh, and good. <laughs> um, are very good. Uh, he thinks he knows everything, except when he needs help, and then he's completely helpless. The after fight here, where there's a, this little conversation between the two of them, the physicality of what ha- what each actor is doing is great. Like... Jim is like picking at his lip uh, because he's obviously going to get a fat lip. In this afterwards, they sell that they actually beat the crap out of each other, right? Like, oh, yeah. there's, it, I I just really appreciate it. I'm going to like it when a broken old man is involved in a fight anyways. <laughs> Finally, a character you can identify with. Yeah. <laughs> but I just like how just without going into like a great deal of makeup or anything, they're just like, yeah. Actually, the like the way Jim favors his lip, I'm like, yeah, I've gotten a swollen lip before, mm-hmm. and I know that beginning part where you're like, oh shoot, yeah. Anyways, just enjoying the craft. We uh, cut to a meeting of the minds uh, in Jim's trailer. Uh, Vern, Billy, and Jim are all comparing notes about what's happened. So Odette basically ran the same job on Vern. That month before, Hmm. Uh, there was a different address, but it was the same setup with Jamie and um, Wexler and a house that was being house sat. It's a different address, but uh, same thing. Vern went in to check something out and it was the old Framola. Uh, He got busted on the breaking and entering as well. Uh, This is happening while Jim is trying to fix his stove. He has these like giant wrenches and is like doing stuff in there while they're all talking. 
this this scene uh, uh, also ends the tension from the Molineros. Uh, it, it gives us an explanation for oh, that. Yeah. Um, cause Jim did do some digging on them and, uh, apparently the husband has like tried to file for divorce three times because of his wife's infidelities. And so yes. Jim thinks that their squirrely behavior was explained by her not wanting more strange men asking about strange men around. Yeah. So he thinks that they didn't have anything to do with it and they just used that empty house. So, yeah. Question asked, question resolved. Um, so he thinks that the thing to do is to concentrate on finding this woman Odette because the other two are probably not even real. Uh, just part of the frame. So we have a nice transition here where Billy tells him where she was last and it's a voiceover as we see Jim go to that location. Mm-hmm. So it's like an, a very like smooth transition to like more action. Um, Jim is leaving the Windrift Apartments. There was something about how this was framed that was really good. So the sign for the Windrift Apartments has a big secondary sign that says uh, no children or pets. Yes. It, could very well just be a background detail, but I did notice it when we came into that scene. Turns out that's actually important. So, yeah, you know, good camera work there, I guess. Like, I noticed. <laughs> but really, the the joy of this scene is Jim lording how much of a better P.I. he is over these other two guys. Yes, I, my notes are Jim is proud of his game. He, you know, didn't ask the manager. The manager couldn't say anything. She left no forwarding address, obviously. Uh, <laughs> so he checked uh, the switchboard. And Billy's like, ah, see, I tried that too, but she didn't leave a, a forwarding number either. And Jim's like, no, I checked her outgoing calls. <laughs> Duh. Duh. Uh, she made a, bent, a bunch to the Triple R Pet Clinic um, because she probably has a cat. And as you can see from the giant sign, no pets allowed. So while she's running this game, she must have been boarding her cat or whatever. He has a lead. Um, I think uh, one of them asks, Oh, that's a real probably isn't even a real name. I mean, I checked the phone books. I checked all the model agencies. That's a waste of time. She's not a model. All right. She's blue eyes, very thin. But both of you said that she was five foot four. You got to be at least five, seven to be a model. Designers clothes hang better on taller women. Who are you? Eve St. Lawrence? Uh, which I thought was a very funny joke. I was not familiar with who Eve St. Lawrence was. The joke is it's pronounced Eve St. Laurent. I get it now. Not Eve's St. Lawrence. <laughs> Got it, yes. <laughs> the other thing is that uh, Billy and Vern have decided to buddy up on this because Jim is basically doing the same job for both of them. And Jim's like, okay, great, that's fine. And they're all smiles. And he says, of course, I'll be charging both of you. And they start arguing. Yes. <laughs> and he has a... Simile that makes sense, but also doesn't about if he was a doctor and if they're in the same accident, he wouldn't charge them just once to set two broken bones. Um, Get your money, Jim. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do feel like you're doing the same work for two people. Just do a package rate. 300 a day. (laughs) Call it good. (laughs) You're not setting two bones. Yeah, you're not doing twice the work. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. So we go to the Triple R Pet Clinic, which has an establishing shot with some good doggos. Um, and Jim mm-hmm. goes in for a good, solid, cold read <gasps> scam. Um, oh, it's so good. His, uh, his wife was driving by there and saw a woman leaving with, uh, with a dog that looked just like their dog that had been lost. <laughs> so he describes the woman, Odette. 
because he has the descriptions from the other two. The receptionist very obligingly says, oh, that sounds like Su- that's a spitting image of Susan Hanrahan. Um, and so Jim then asks a bunch of questions with random biographical info so that the receptionist will correct him with the correct info. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so smooth. So good. What's great about it is that he's thinking on his feet enough to do it, but then also he's presenting himself as a person who would make these mistakes and need to be corrected. I don't know. It's just something about it that's just yeah. like, yeah, okay, yeah. Here, here you go. Here you go. Yeah. Um, so he gets the name, Susan Hanrahan, and uh, her address, I believe. Um, but, you mm-hmm. know, are you sure that's who you're talking about? Because she doesn't have a, she has a cat. Like, she doesn't have a dog. <laughs> and uh, we end with a, a good little gag. Yes, she had her animal neutered. But as I said, sir, it's a cat. Miss, Carla does have her problems, but she can tell a cat from a dog. I mean, that's rather basic, don't you think? Ah, <laughs> uh, good times. Uh, but yeah, so he looks her up in the phone book, uh, does get the address, and we cut to there where he's seeing the cat. In the window, so confirming that, yes, this is where Susan Hanrahan lives. We ha- then have the appearance of a mustachioed man in a cast on a crutches with his, you know, his leg basically totally immobilized in a cast. And my first thought was Bruce, because I swear to God, I thought this was uh, Bruce uh, Tuttle. Ah, who has been in a number of Rockford, early Rockford Files episodes, uh, just as a background character, but he just has this very memorable face and mustache. Um, he was in Pastoria Prime Pick, he was in Four Pound Brick, Just Another Polish Wedding, and in Hazard. But this is okay. not him. He just has a similar mustache. <laughs> uh, but this is a man, um, we learn his name is Garth. Uh, but this guy in the cast sees Jim looking in the window of his apartment, um, and then sees him go across the street to the Firebird, where he takes a nice little rest, uh, where he can see the apartment as he browses through a gas range manual to uh, pass the time. I I appreciate, uh, I mean, I I know he's trying to fix a stove, but also I appreciate reading an instruction manual to pass (laughs) the time. That is a thing I do do as a hobby i i would love to do it in a firebird while (laughs) staking out uh we go to a phone call in an office full of dudes uh the the framing of this is there's one uh important man in a suit sitting at a desk and then a bunch of important men in suits standing around um (laughs) (laughs) so you can tell that this is a bunch of important men in suits uh, Garth, uh, is calling in saying that he's being staked out. This guy's been here for three hours. Um, he's run its plates and it's Jim Rockford, a PI. We established that this is special projects that he's talking to. And someone says to tell Susan not to come home until they know where this guy's at. So the plot thickens. There are men in suits involved. Yes. And there's some, something called special projects, which is always ominous. Yeah. So we cut to uh, a, a goon in a pinstripe suit. Uh, these are very much official goons, not uh, rough yeah. and tumble goons. Pinstripe suit uh, comes up to Jim's <sighs> open window, and they have a polite exchange of veiled hostilities as another goon in a brown suit comes up on the other side. The moment this started, I remembered this exchange. Oh, really? <laughs> this, is, this has to have been one of my favorite exchanges. Hi. Hi. What you doing? Oh, just putting up my guard like I always do when somebody sticks their nose in my business. 
And you see him making preparations yeah. for his exit. Like, we all know what this is. I know you're talking politely, but I'm just like, mm-hmm. in a, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very good. Um, so just as Pinstripe tries to open his, his door, he hits the gas and peels <laughs> out, leaving them both stumbling. Uh, but they... Uh, quickly run to a very sporty Corvette. Oh, yeah. uh, I know it's a Corvette because Jim says uh, you came out of that vet. Um, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Jim. <laughs> this is a gorgeous car. Yeah. I'm not a car person, but Corvettes do it for me. And this this is a gorgeous Corvette. This chase, I think, quickly establishes that uh, they are just straight up in a faster car. Um, yeah. Even though he had the advantage <laughs> and uh, he was able to get around corners before they can catch him, but they catch up with him anyway. Uh, so we have some great practical street driving uh, with these cars uh, waving all over the place. Um, Jim cuts down a, a dead end street uh, and stops at a barrier. The Corvette stops at the barrier. Uh, Jim looks over, smiles at the guys, and then just pops a from a dead stop J-turn. Oh, so good. It's very good. I have now seen all of Hyperdrive on your recommendation. Yes. <laughs> Were you already, can you hear the announcers? <laughs> Did you see a line of lit pylons that, uh, I I did. (laughs) That one would be hard though, because it's coming from that dead stop. So his his back end goes pretty far. I don't, I think he would have gotten some penalties on, uh, (laughs) uh, on that course for this particular one because he didn't have any speed going into it. Uh, I do love how they just leave the camera there to contrast these. So Jim does the J turns very quick and the Corvette has to do a three point turn um, to, you know, turn itself around in the same space. And it's uh, it's like, oh, yeah, J turns way better. It's a way <laughs> smooth. It's a way slicker uh, uh, maneuver. But they, again, use their superior speed to catch up to him. So what does he do to, to get away from these guys and their faster Corvette? <laughs> There's something about this whole sequence here from from that the beginning when the the guy comes to his window to hear that is so indelibly etched on my brain and I don't know when it happened but I got so excited the further along this way he went because I kept anticipating this moment where Jim just as he's flying away notices that there's a pair of cops that have pulled over someone <laughs> and just slides right in behind like he Coming down at speed, just turns it again and slides the car in right behind the cop car and gets out and just surrenders to the cops right away. Anything to keep himself out of the hands of these goons who then... They just they just drive away. They just go past. Yeah. Doesn't he say hello? Uh, he says hi to the cop. That's what it is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. As they're putting him in handcuffs, he just gives a big smile and says hi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so good. And then the cut. Happy... I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the information superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidia, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games... Maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com, where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. Oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the Worldwide Wrestling, Pro Wrestling Role-Playing Game, among many others. You can find 
links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com. And of course, you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta. Looks like you're back. You you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there, Epi? I'm back. I have my DM42 with me, and I'm ready to get in, dig down into Rockford's books again. Mm. All right, well, I'm done with this delicious avocado taco. Well, let's get back to the show then. This cut is to Jim blowing in a balloon because they're giving him a <laughs> breathalyzer. I guess due to his reckless driving there, uh, giving him the, the breathalyzer. Um, while they're, you know, doing that operation, Jim, we see Jim see Dennis out of the window and call to him. And then he goes out to try and get him. And the opposite door closes in Jim's face. Uh <laughs> So I was like, oh, I wonder if that's the only Dennis appearance. Like, I think that would be very funny if the only. Yeah. If, yeah. Yeah, if Joe Santos got paid for like Jim shouting Dennis and the door closing in his face. <laughs> Thankfully, we do see Dennis. But uh, in yeah. this moment, the, the whole point of this, and this is all like just good, solid Rockford pulling threads together in a in this narrative moment. Right. Jim needs to use the cops to get away from the goons. The cops take him downtown because they arrests him for you know the reckless driving and whatever uh he runs out to see dennis who doesn't want to talk to him because that would be an embarrassment uh, as we know so in the hall jim sees another pi that he knows marv he sees marv asks him how it's going and turns out that marv has been arrested for carrying a concealed weapon and it looks like uh he's going to lose his license over it we have a slow zoom into jim's face (laughs) this is turning into something that is bigger than he thought yeah the addition of Marv does exactly that. It, it, it lets us know, lets us and Jim know that the stakes are are bigger or, the, the, yeah, it's a vaster thing that's happening here. Uh, but also, and it, like as you mentioned before, sort of the difference between Billy and Vern. With Billy is, is younger and uh, it, it's sort of like looking at the two different sides or, you know, the, this is the ghost of P.I. past and... Uh, I would have guessed Vern as future, but then Marv shows up <laughs> and where Vern is like sad in the pathetic way, Marv is sad in the like, like this is like a broken shadow of a man. Right? He's more down to earth. Like Vern is kind yeah. of a caricature, right? Yeah. Uh, he's kind of from another time and he doesn't, you could easily see that he just kind of lives in his own little bubble. Um, yeah. Uh, Marv is, as we learn in a second, he has a daughter going to college. He, you know, mm-hmm. he has to like, he has bills to pay. Um, this is the version of Jim that Jim could see himself turning into if things don't <laughs> yes. break right. While I think Jim never sees himself turning into Vern. Yeah, yeah. But it, I mean, it's great. You've got these three uh, PIs in addition to Jim who don't necessarily have a lot of screen time each. They've got a, a bit, but like, again, in true Rockford Files fashion... Each one is a clear character that you can, mm-hmm. like, it would be easy to confuse Vern and Marv because they're just these two old guys. <laughs> with similar names. Yeah, with similar names. And, and like, they're both broken, and but the, they managed to give them these two different, mm-hmm. very distinct flavors and personality. Uh, we have a crossfade to Jim and Marv uh, leaving the station as Marv explains what happened. At this point, he does not think it's a setup. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jim, you know, kind of fills him in about what's going on. But so the setup for him was that he had a client who, uh, 
was going to a meeting with her ex-husband because uh, he promised to pay her some money that he owed her, but he's notoriously like volatile or violent. And so she wanted him to come along kind of as protection is what it sounds like. Um, so he brought his gun just in case, you know, just to threaten the guy if it needed to happen. Uh, and there's this great moment where he's like, uh, what, you've never done that? And Jim just shrugs and is like, yeah, Jim's done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like just in case. And then uh, they're sitting there having dinner. The husband hadn't even showed up. And then these cops come in and just roust him out and uh, arrest him for the concealed weapon. He's like, I don't know what happened. Maybe in the bathroom, someone saw it in my jacket. Um, yeah. And he, he gets on the, he's telling the story as he's going to a payphone because he's like, you know, I didn't even think till now I need to talk to my client. She doesn't even know what happened. Uh, in the middle of this is like the line. Uh, you know, Jessica's supposed to go to college this fall. What am I supposed to do for money? Get a Mickey Mouse job? <laughs> uh, but it's like, yeah, I need to call my client, Odette. Dun, dun, dun. Odette. This Odette. We come back in to Vern picking up a hugely filled pastrami sandwich. That is my note. <laughs> the camera's on the sandwich, and then his hand comes into the frame to pick it up. It is an enormous amount of meat between two pieces of white bread. Yes. And then we pull out and we see that uh, Vern, Billy, and Marv are in the back room of the shoe store. And uh, Vern says, where's the where's the big R? He called this meeting. So from now on, <laughs> officially, we get to call Rockford the big R. The big R. Uh, so Jim does appear. Um, Vern immediately starts into him. Uh, Why don't you go back to Susan's apartment? You know who she is now. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but Jim doesn't want to get his gourd stomped. And clearly, this is a well-planned operation. Uh, whatever she's doing, she's the common thread in these three setups, and it's a systematic attempt, or a systematic, I guess, success at destroying PIs. Um, in a moment of off-screen narrative convenience, uh, he got a lot of very helpful information from uh, the valet <laughs> yeah. at the restaurant where Marv got set up. Uh, I believe it. Yeah, including that uh, the description of her, so that description matches everyone else's, and that she left with a mm -hmm. tall guy in a three-piece suit uh, who does not seem to be anyone that we've seen so far. So Jim says it's at least a four-man operation. It could be more. Um, the brother-in-law pops in to uh, tell Vern that break's over. He needs to get back to work. <laughs> and uh, we get into the oh. back end of the scene, which... I think which is which is funny, well done, and I think has to be a reference to Blazing Saddles. To Blazing Saddles, yeah. So this is a couple of years after Blazing Saddles. I don't know if that uh, explains anything, but uh, well, it's after Blazing Saddles. Yeah, no, I think it does. So uh, everyone laughs at Vern because he has to go back to work for his brother-in-law at the shoe store, uh, <laughs> and uh, Vern says, "Oh, it's easy for you to laugh. You're sitting over there on welfare." He points at Billy. And Billy very specifically says, it is not welfare. It is unemployment insurance. Um, yeah. And Vern uh, invoking a uh, a racist talking point about uh, African-American people in America. Welfare, unemployment insurance, whatever. Sure beats working. Oh, man. But, yeah. Then, oh, man. How do you even... <sighs> this works on screen much better than I think it will sound. 
yeah, there's no reason for us two white dudes <laughs> to try and recreate what happens here. Billy responds to that, like understands that insult and responds to it by mm-hmm. using uh, very uh, using like massa coding mm-hmm. to invoke the stereotype of the the happy slave to come back at Vern. Yeah, he. I mean, like he's he's clearly showing Vern. Uh, He's responding to Vern in a way that just illustrates the the culture where his ideas comes from. So what he's doing is he's uh, telling Vern that he's going to need to eat up that whole sandwich so he has the strength to go back to that hard job that he has. But yeah. then he ends it <laughs> by grabbing Vern's hands and shoving them together to destroy said sandwich. Yes. And then he just pushes past him out the door. You know, he kind of uses a humorous illustration of Vern's biggest bigotry to get back at him. Mm -hmm. Vern is clearly the butt of the joke here. Yeah, exactly. It is an interesting moment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that whole dynamic is what Blazing Saddles is about. Yes. Turning the bigotry of all these, you know, quote, Wild West white people back upon themselves through both this, both the, the smarts and also just like the internal character of the sheriff that uh, Cleveland Little plays. Anyway, I hope that made sense. The point is, <laughs> it is funny in kind of a weird way. <laughs> uh, and there's a button on it. Yeah. Did you see that? Did you see that? That's assault and battery. No, I think it was corned beef and mustard. So there you go. <laughs> the show is giving us the correct person to to identify with yeah. in this situation it is still uh an awfully i don't know strongly coded scene yeah yeah the kind of epilogue to all of that uh is that billy and jim leave together and then Vern calls marv back in and says okay <laughs> jim isn't doing what what i think he should be doing so let's take turns staking out susan's apartment while he goes off and does whatever poor marv falls for it because again i think marv is desperate and wants something to happen and he's like okay i see how this can help while Vern is feeling slighted and that he's smarter than everyone and no one's listening to him (laughs) so he's gonna do something yeah um again the characters they they make sense (laughs) this valet uh also gave jim the description and license plate of the car that the tall man in the three-piece suit had come in and so he has clearly followed this up and he is at at the named parking space for ted clare at a building labeled waterbury security systems having seen the title to this episode we know he's on the right track yes (laughs) we were waiting for it uh, we cut back to Marv. Uh, he is in a uh, hilariously, it's not obvious, like, with stuff sticking out of it, but it's like, this is obviously supposed to look like a nondescript van. Right, yes. <laughs> it's del- it's a deliberately descriptly nondescript van. And so Marv's in there, surrounded by equipment, uh, eavesdropping on the apartment that Garth, the guy with the uh, uh, broken leg, is in. We hear some women talking, and then we cut into the apartment, and we see that he's just watching a soap opera. Um, Then we come back, (laughs) and uh, the back door of the van gets pulled open, and it is our two suited goons, Pinstripe and Brown Suit. Um, Pinstripe has a pithy line. Some sort of threat. Marv responds with uh, Rockford-like instincts. Yes. You better leave me alone. I'm with the FBI. Uh, But... uh, Clearly, that's not going to work as the response is, that's nice. My wife's with the PTA. (laughs) And the camera goes outside the van for an ominous door close as the two goons have uh, closed themselves in there with Marv. Poor Marv. 
We cut to a big painting of Judah Waterbury, the founder of Waterbury Security Systems, um, in the lobby as Jim is uh, talking to a receptionist and gets passed up to talk to Ted Clare. Uh, so he takes an elevator to the 12th floor, this becomes important later, um, and meets uh, our our tall man, in, sure enough, in his three-piece suit, uh, and with his uh, transatlantic accent, I think as we were uh, <laughs> yes. mentioning. Jim's line here is that he was at the restaurant with his wife that same night, and he thinks that his wife and the woman that Ted was with accidentally switched their sunglasses. And so he's trying to get his wife's sunglasses back. I love how much Jim's wife comes up in this in this episode. Yes. <laughs> I feel like he doesn't use that super often. This is a good... I, I like this particular con, because mm-hmm. this is... It's, it's so inconsequential. Like, yeah. As a premise. But it's plausible... Uh, and also, we're in this situation where the people he's dealing with aren't going to buy it, but they have to buy it to keep their own... To keep kind of their own con running? Yeah, yeah. It's not to his advantage to be like, I know that you're a PI in this. Mm-hmm. If he even does, which he might not. Like, they might know the name, but not, you know, his face right. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, we also get in in Jim kind of being like, wow, this is such a beautiful building. We get a little bit of exposition that uh, uh, Waterbury must be the biggest detective agency in the world. Well, other than the Pinkertons. <laughs> uh, Ted does give a call to Suze, uh, and she appears. She says, nope, those are not my sunglasses. And Jim's like, oh, well. And he, he does a, a whole aw shucks routine about, uh, you know, are you sure? You know, it was really chaotic that night. I mean, the police came in and dragged away that guy with the gun yes. and everything and insists that they must remember uh, all of that. And then, like, Susan tells putting him off with a story in order to get him to leave, but without yeah. just telling him to leave, right? Yeah. They're both kind of like, this annoying guy is still here. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that he knows they're in a story yeah. gives him leverage to just keep cranking. Mm-hmm. You know, he keeps pushing in. For, he's like... Oh, but you sat with the guy. <laughs> like, just won't let him go. Won't let him uh, get their way out comfortably. Right. Um, so uh, they finally make their final, you know, sorry, we can't help you. Ted guides him into the elevator. Jim closes the door. And then uh, we see that doors immediately open again as he watches them leave around a corner, trails them uh, through this open kind of office. We overhear susan saying oh did you hear uh wendell butterfield was killed on the freeway and uh ted says well that that's one we don't have to concern ourselves with yeah they say this as they walk up a staircase as opposed to taking an elevator so jim hears them say this sees them go up the staircase goes back to the elevator uh looks thoughtful and we see some directed glances at the floor indicator this scene continues on the outside as he goes to his car. Well, hold up, because this is the moment that my mom breaks the case wide open. Because <laughs> as we're watching it, my mom goes, is there a number 13? I don't think there's a number 13. Boom. This is communicated to us uh, through Jim on the outside of the building, looks up at the top of the building, and is obviously counting the floors. And so it's like, okay, there's something about the floor. That's going to be important later. Yeah. Yeah, telegraphing the stuff that we'll need to know, right, to lay the Mm -hmm. groundwork. Um, He calls the shoe store, uh, trying to get in touch with Vern, who isn't there, but his brother-in-law is is mad. Uh, You tell me when you hear from Vern, he forgot to order the sateen wedges. We're out of stock. (laughs) Oh, Vern. Oh, and it's... It's uh, senior prom 
the biggest night of the year. Uh, Jim goes to Marv's office, uh, and we get our downbeat of the episode. Oh, yeah. There's this little, like, kind of country music music bag. Yeah. A radio's been left on or something like that. Mm-hmm. And somehow that makes it more ominous. Uh, Jim opens the inner door to his to Marv's office, and the phone's off the hook. There's a dial tone. Stuff's all over the place. The place has clearly been... Uh, been tossed and then he walks around to the side of the desk and we see a hand and then we see poor marv blood on his face lying motionless on the floor or as my mom describes it oh no that's his buddy i know (laughs) jim hears the outer door open and he kind of takes a position where he can't be seen uh from the door uh as Vern comes in and he's yelling for marv uh Comes in, sees the body, and then Jim, stealthily from behind him, kind of startles him with, <laughs> I just got here. He must have been He must have been surprised. Jim clarifies for us that he's been beat to death. Mm-hmm. Vern is upset, obviously. He was supposed to be on the stakeout. Jim, what stakeout? Cut to commercial. <laughs> <laughs> we come back with uh, cops on the scene. Dennis is there. Oh, we get some fun interactions now. Billings has a good line at the beginning of the scene. Uh, if we had a dollar for every maybe, we wouldn't need this job. Because <laughs> there's a lot of maybes about what happened. Dennis says that the evidence here, it looks like there's a break-in and a burglary. Uh, a bunch of stuff is missing in addition to, you know, the stuff being all over the place. Jim tries to tell him that there's this game being run on PIs all over town. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a coordinated thing. Marv was on a, on a stakeout at the apartment of someone involved this must be related. But then Vern interrupts him and he's like, let me tell the story. And then he starts talking down to Dennis. <laughs> Vern and Dennis have great chemistry. Oh, let yeah. Me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's basically like, all right, you're a stupid cop. So let me, a yeah. smart PI, tell you what happened. <laughs> like, it is uh, very blatant. And then we get the gag where Jim is behind Dennis facing Vern and trying to, like, wave him off. Like, no, don't say it. Don't go there. And we see Dennis's face get grumpier and grumpier um, before Jim finally cuts in and says, uh, look, it's my story. Let me tell it. Uh, gives him all the, the the details that he's overheard. Talks about this, uh, this Wendell Butterfield uh, who was killed on the highway, but he's also a PI. And so obviously he must have been on their list uh, if they were talking about him. Now they don't have to deal with him. One of the world's foremost security firms, and they're worried about the little neighborhood stores, right? There's always a big attrition rate in your business. You people are flaky, undependable. Hey, flaky? Yes, and you have your moments, admit it. Look at this case history. This guy busts into an old lady's house. Our dead man started to flash his gun in a Chinese restaurant. And this kind of thing is not unusual. So let's not blame it on some kind of a gigantic plot. So Dennis is not being helpful. We end the scene with Vern saying, like, what can we do? We have no proof. And Jim is unwilling to accept that as the end. Why don't you just go sell shoes, huh? (laughs) Poor Vern. I mean, he deserves it, but poor Vern. So finally, uh, as as audience, we get to see a little bit of what is going on. Um, We're in a fancy office with Ted Clare uh, and and someone who's clearly an important guy. I'm pretty sure this is the guy who took the phone call in our first Let's See All These Men in Suits scene. Uh, Mr. LaPointe, uh, who's reading a headline in the paper, Hollywood Private Eye Slain. This whole thing has gotten out of control. So Ted is in charge of this operation. Uh, LaPointe is like the special, like head of the special projects division, whatever that is. Or maybe Ted is... 
also just special projects. It doesn't really matter. They called in sticks yeah. and stones to deal with yes. Marv. Because Special Projects is trained to subdue ex-husbands and bodyguard rock stars, not conduct interrogations. But uh, unfortunately, Marv had a heart attack. So they did not try to kill him, but he he, he died when they were asking him questions. And this is the cover-up, the, like, the robbery, the fake robbery. The whole operation was just aiming for a 20% reduction in the private investigator share yeah. of the Special Projects market. <laughs> So this whole this thing... This is just like a, a little marginal thing that they wanted done. Yeah, they just wanted to be able to, to, to bodyguard more rock stars. That's all they wanted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ted had good operatives. They had over $84,000 in salaries dedicated to this project. Now, in today money, that's a little over... Three hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So oh. you know, it's a chunk, but this is a you know second to the Pinkertons. This is also when executive salaries weren't so uh, ballooned. Yeah. The point is, he had a lot of resources at his disposal, but it's turned into a bloody mess. Ted explains that they they were going to uh, the the term they use is disenfranchise. Uh, they mm-hmm. were going to disenfranchise Rockford. He was fourth on their list, but he was on vacation, so they couldn't get to him uh, until he came back. Yes. Which implies that Billy, Vern, and Marv were the top three? Or just under Rockford, right? Because they were the next in line. Because he's gone, so they went to the next... Yeah. Yeah. But in any case, the, these are the cream of the crop here. Right. This is the... <laughs> right. Or maybe maybe they're playing it smart and they're just taking out the... They're like, if we took out Lance White, we'd have trouble. Taking out the less successful PIs opens up the market yeah. with the least risk. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, uh, Lapointe is, uh, he's saying that the this whole thing went south because Ted allowed cohabitation. Oh, yeah. And I love Ted's response. You have allowed two of your people to cohabit. Isn't that so? Hanrahan and McCreary? Mr. Lapointe, it is the 1970s, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, get over it. Well, it's sloppy practice, uh, but they've instituted containment. Uh, Susan has been taken out of the city. They've destroyed uh, documents about like who was hired and who was in what department. All the operational records are going going to London, and the program has been terminated. The loose end is that they still don't know what Rockford knows, and we get our scene from the preview montage. You know, what are you going to do about that? Ted says, "Kill him," and the point <laughs> says, "I didn't say that." Yes. Ted leaves, and then we see uh, LaPointe pull out a drawer and turn off his tape recorder, where clearly he is <laughs> recording the conversation for his own protection. Yeah, just in case. Yep, so sneaky. CYA. All right, we get into our uh, grand PI gambit. Um, <laughs> Here we are, yes. In Jim's trailer, Vern has never heard a plan so ridiculous. Uh, but Jim explains that uh, this operation must be coming out of the hidden 13th floor because the elevator mm-hmm. skips floor 13 like a lot of buildings. They don't have a 13th that goes 12 to 14 because 13 is unlucky. But uh, but he counted and the building has 16 physical floors. So in a 15 story building, that means that they do have a hidden 13th floor. Yes, this is the clever deduction that my mom pulled off. Vern doesn't want to be the diversion because that means he's on the spot, but he doesn't he doesn't have any moral <laughs> ground to stand on because, as Jim says, he's the one who talked Marv into a casket. Yeah, um, this is basically the only chance for them to get 
proof of what happened, justice for Marv, and get everyone's licenses back. Jim doesn't like what's happening to his friends or his profession. <laughs> then we end with the weirdest version of the angel uh, relationship. Yeah. <laughs> with Vern saying, oh yeah, am I your friend? Uh, Jim just looks at him and we freeze frame on Marv's face. Yeah. <laughs> it was a weird choice. I mean, presumably for a commercial break. Yeah, we see there's a little more about this at the end, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, so here goes with the operation. Ah, oh, boy. What <laughs> <laughs> What was your emotional journey during this sequence? Because I feel like there's a lot. There, there is. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of people in the room. Mm-hmm. They had journeys as well. <laughs> the um, They don't tell you what their plan is going to be, obviously, because you're going to watch it unfold. That's fun. Uh, it's a little complex. There are some phone calls to be made, and it mm-hmm. took me a few moments to figure out who is actually making which call. Mm-hmm. And because they said that Rocky was making one of the calls, <laughs> uh, it turns out that Rocky was making the call that Rocky should make, and it, that was perfectly fine. But I had this, I had some real apprehension about <laughs> what would happen. Yeah. Um, so the setup is this. Uh, Marv is going to get up onto the roof. And as far as I know, he just walks in and goes up to the roof. I, I can't remember if he does any finagling to... We do see him get off at the 12th floor and go into the janitor's closet. So yeah. I wonder if it's just because they know for sure there's a janitor's closet there. So that's where he should hide. That could be, yeah. Then um, Billy goes to make a phone call. And Billy's phone call is to say that he sees someone on the roof who's going to jump. This is the diversion. Uh, and Marv is on the roof with beer. I'm sorry, Vern. Sorry. I think I said Marv also. I had it mixed up in my notes. Uh, they're very similar names. So Vern is on the roof with beer. Yeah, it would be a, it would be a trick if it was Marv on the roof. <laughs> well, he brought in his, his briefcase like a important business person full of bottles of beer for just this purpose. Uh, while he's up there making a thing of it and throwing beer bottles down at people as he's finishing them, Billy and Jim uh, sneak into the building, right. sneak the keys away from the guard... Because the guard predictably left him in the door. That was a little, that's like the moment of like, hmm. But then again, Jimbo knows how to pick a lot. True. Uh, But anyways, they go up to, they take the elevator up to the 12th floor, get off and take the stairwell to the 13th floor. Right. Now they have to figure out which room to go into. This is my favorite part. This is this is where Rocky comes into yeah, play. Yeah, exactly. Rocky has an important role to play. Because Rocky calls the phone number for uh, Claire. Right. Ted Claire. I am at this very moment now wondering, how did they get... I think it's just, I mean, he works there. He probably just has, you know, yeah. a right. number. Yeah, so they call Ted Claire. And so by the ringing of the phone, uh, Jim and Billy know which room to go into. Mm-hmm. Genius. It's a great plan. Uh, they go into the room. There's a little bit of business with Rocky <laughs> on the phone. Jim Jim answers the phone, and then clearly Rocky wants to tell him something or ask him something or have yeah. a conversation. And <laughs> yeah. he just goes, no, I can't. Dad, not now, okay? Hangs <laughs> up. And so they start searching the room. The drama there is, will they get it done in time? The cops have shown up. The fire department has shown up. Uh, 
Vern is on the roof. There's a crowd accumulating, and it's like, where did yes. this crowd come from? Because it's not like they're near a street, but if there's someone on the roof, obviously there needs to be a crowd. It's going to be a crowd. And I really, I like Vern during this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's doing a good job. I don't think we as viewers are supposed to think that he's suicidal. No, I, don't I think so. we're supposed to know he's the diversion. Yeah, um, I, he. Uh, I mean, we see him checking his watch before he yells again. You know, get away! And then the cops send up a negotiator. Yes, you got kids. I got kids. <laughs> you want to see pictures of my kids? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Vern tells him to suck an egg. Yes, <laughs> in very Vern fashion. But eventually, they, they I think they're about to give up, and then they try a file cabinet. <laughs> well, they turn around and see another door. I think that's what Jim picks, maybe? Yes, that's it. Okay. Uh, they get into this room, and that's where they find the files on everyone. And so I presume these are the files that are going, that are being sent to London. Uh, yeah. Great. Got the files. Um uh, we uh, keep cutting back and forth, right, between this drama and what's going on on the roof. Yeah. My next uh, little great bit here is, uh, you know, they go back down to the 12th floor and then Jim's like, we can't take the elevator. There's going to be people. So now they have to walk down 12 flights of stairs. <laughs> uh, good job. And in a shot that I think perhaps uh, uh, previews a similar shot from the end of part one of The Trees, the Bees, and T.T. Flowers. Yes. We see from the perspective of Jim and Billy as they walk through the empty lobby towards the doors that are closed and may or may not, you know, have some, be locked or have someone there. And then a security guard just appears from off camera to, to challenge them. There's amazing blather during this sequence here. Uh, I, I can't do it justice but the the Jim just talking fast and with authority to keep anyone from spending any time thinking about anything yeah. at the end here is great. And it's like just enough. Hold it. What are you two doing here? Where's the nearest liquor store? I said hold it. Answer me. The man on the roof has demanded more beer. Now we're going to get it. You two were up there? We're police psychiatrists. Now stop wasting time. I got to get over to the man's home and coach his wife. There's Barry's wine cellar near Camden. Okay, you get on that, Hank. I'll uh, get a black and white. Go over to the man's home, code three. Now, uh, he wants Rocky Mountain brand. Yeah. <laughs> Not only is the does he have the, the guard's attention, I think you see Billy kind of being like, damn. <laughs> like, yeah, Billy, yeah. Billy seems impressed. Uh, they do get out the door, but like as the door closes, you see the security guard's face kind of being like, wait a second. Like, yes. It was just long <laughs> enough for what they needed. Which is exactly the point to blather. Um, and then up on, up on top. <laughs> Ver, Vern just, uh, they give him the all clear or he sees them down below, right? Like, yeah, he sees them on yeah. the street and he's just like, jump. never said I was going to jump. Like, he's, <laughs> all right, we're done. <laughs> uh, we cut to Ted Claire in very, uh, swanky tinted glasses handcuffed at the police <laughs> station. Yes. Saying that it wasn't as nefarious as it seemed. <laughs> So apparently, you know, this information has brought down this uh, special projects uh, thing. Um, Then it says they're going to arrest those other two goons and all three of them are going to face homicide charges for what happened to Marv. So that's 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 good, at least. Um, There's a great exchange where uh, Dennis asks Rockford, uh, do you happen to know? Uh, the identity of your mysterious friend who (laughs) sent us all these files in an unmarked brown envelope. (laughs) 
I love how Dennis clearly knows that yeah. <laughs> it was them, but but uh, Jim's just like, all I can say is thank you to him, and Billy chimes in like, or her. Yeah. <laughs> Dennis tells Vern that he's lucky no criminal charges were filed for that stunt up there, so there's a little line. Because I was thinking, I was like, isn't he just going to get, like, arrested? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we had the little line of apparently uh, they decided not to, not to do anything with him. Um... And then uh, we leave it with our three PIs for the exchange of some some banter to round out our episode. Uh, Billy says that we hit it right on the bullseye, and Jim offers <laughs> to pop a cork of champagne to to celebrate. They come over to his trailer later, but Vern he uh, doesn't appear to to share in this in this yeah. mirth. In a couple of weeks, we are going to be competing with each other all over again, dog eat dog. Oh, so what, man? Let's bury the hatchet. Bury the hatchet. That's a catchy phrase. Very original. Hey, come on, Vern. We went through a lot together. Let's be friends. Well, see you guys around. Hey, fellas. Don't take any wooden nickels. He just can't admit that he can be friends with anyone, right? Right. <laughs> He's Vern. He's a tough old, you know, tough old so-and-so. He doesn't need these guys. So mm -hmm. when Jim says, let's be friends, he, he cannot respond in kind, but he does leave on, hey, fellas, don't take any wooden nickels. Yes. <laughs> and then Billy and Jim toast with their little police department coffee cups and share a <laughs> smile and uh, freeze frame. End of episode. Does Rockford get paid? Who knows? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can see Billy maybe trading him a favor. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he ever gets anything from Vern. <laughs> no. Uh, so I enjoyed that episode. Yeah, uh, me too. That was a good one. Um, it's just, it's a good, it's a good ensemble cast piece, right? Like uh, as far as um, you still have this lead, you're still here for Jim and that's who you're going to follow around. But uh, for a bunch of characters that we don't get before and only one returns later, mm -hmm. I, Dennis and Rocky are in it a little bit too. I should give them credit for that. But like, it just does a great job of like, building camaraderie right away, showing that there's a group with this interpersonal stuff, but like you can see how and why they might get along. And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it was a delight. I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, this was definitely one where I kind of just like tried not to think too far ahead because I have seen it before yeah. and just like kind of let it do its thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let it wash over you like the ocean. I feel like I've talked about this on, on some other recent episodes, but the um, the stakes are important personally, but they're not of earth shattering consequence. Mm -hmm. They're very important for our, you know, our heroes here, our friends, yeah. the PIs. Uh, but once you zoom out of their perspective, it really like even the people executing this plot, it's not personal, right? Like yeah. <laughs> they're just trying to like expand their market share, which is that very cold yeah, like, yeah. corporate logic um that makes that villainous. But it's not about fleecing a bunch of retirees of their uh retirement funds or something like that. Even uh, at the end there with uh, Ted Clare's line, like, it's not as nefarious as it looks. <laughs> like, you kind of get the impression that it wasn't. Like, they they had a plan that they were a little proud of, maybe. Yeah. And uh, 
we're just going to put a few PIs out of business. Right. Uh, nobody would have cared about them, mm-hmm. whatever. And uh, Right. And we're doing it and we provide a better service. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it only matters because these are the characters we care about that it impacts. And yeah. that's the kind of stuff that, you know, draws me in more than big, vague stakes. Like the small personal stakes are good. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. I think this is a this is also a good blend of audience perspective where we we see uh we see more than Jim knows just so that we have the mm-hmm. context for why Jim's decisions are going to matter. Um yeah. Right. So we we see stuff before the detectives do so that we know why things are dangerous to the detectives in the next scene or whatever. Yeah. Um so that's all good stuff. Uh I think I mentioned at the beginning that there's a lot of uh there's a lot of exposition in this one. There's a lot of like, let me tell you all the stuff that's happening, um, <laughs> which is ha- handled well. And, you know, we talked about how it, it wasn't like overbearing or anything uh, in the uh, in our Ed Robertson book, uh, 30 Years of the Roffer Files. The entry for this particular episode talks about the um, because this was an early David Chase episode, mm-hmm. talks about the differences in the writing style between Juanita Bartlett, David Chase and um Stephen Cannell. Uh, and there's an interview with Cannell where he kind of breaks it down and says that, like, Juanita wrote very short. Her lines of dialogue were very short, one or two sentences. And she had this amazing ability in a very few number of words to say so much and be so funny. Uh, David, on the other hand, wrote soliloquies. Some of his speeches went on for <laughs> half a page. I was somewhere in the middle of the two of them. Um and he also says that David's more of a cerebral writer, while he and Juanita were more visceral, visceral writers, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. I guess that kind of resonates with like how much exposition there is in this episode. Was like, yeah, there is some speechifying a little bit, not declaiming, but just like I have a lot of words to say. Well, yeah, because it's it's three different uh, three different cons that are played on the PIs, right? Not right. not including all the stuff that that Jim does or anything like that, but just the. Um, but I guess. Uh, uh, Vern and Billy have pretty much the same one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> Something about that that I really like is how it's asymmetrical, and that is has intrinsically has more energy than if it was all a symmetrical Mm -hmm. setup. So this is something I think we talk about in game design sometimes where if everything in your design is perfectly balanced, it's static. Um, Yeah. You know, you gain points here, you lose points here, that kind of stuff. It's when things get out of balance that you start getting more dynamic tension. And that principle is kind of at work in this setup where we have the first setup, which has the details of the house and the break-in and entering. And then we have the second setup, which is almost identical to the first setup. Right. And has the same Mm -hmm. result. So we're like, okay, here's a pattern. One, two. Yeah. And then the third one breaks the pattern in terms of the setup because it's the same result. That feels more systematic almost. Yeah. If there are three different ones, then we have a whole other level of exposition we need. Yeah. Just to get us to the same place. But if all three are exactly the same, we lose all those storytelling opportunities of the restaurant. Yeah. It's in a public place. And, uh... It even has that thematic resonance with the gun and the answering machine message. Like the the fact that it's two and one instead of three or one, one and one is more of a dynamic right. device. There's something there, I think, for narrative structure that's really uh, a, a nice little takeaway lesson, I would say. There's also that imbalance. Uh, we were just saying this before, so I'm just going over it again. But the uh, between what's at stake for Waterbury and Waterbury's employees and what's at stake for these PIs, right? Like they're different outfit doing a different thing 
they're not really in competition. I guess they are technically in competition with the PIs, but they're just like, you could just see a memo coming from accounting that said, you know, if we could take over 20% more of of the PI market. Like like our our target for quarter three is a 20% gain in personal protection contracts or something like that. And you're just like, okay, uh, that's we're gonna give that job to Ted here. Ted, you take care of it, mm-hmm. and like it gets blown out of proportion. But even from Ted's point of view, it doesn't. It's not really blown out of proportion. It's just it just uh, it got messed it's just up a little bit. Like he just went a little too far. But that's all. Um, yeah. Anyways, good stuff. Um, good stuff. I dig it. Mm-hmm. Good. It's nice. Uh, we we like the Rockford Files. It continues to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, even though Jim probably does not uh, get anything from his friends and is out whatever it costs to fix his stove, uh, I feel like yes. we have earned our two hundred dollars for this day, as the two of us have buddied up on this particular job. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. We have a bit of a plan for the next couple episodes. Uh, oh, hope yeah. you enjoy it. So please join us again for when we come back to talk about another episode, or maybe two, of The Rockford Files. Synth. <laughs>